Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Oh shit! I actually remembered it this time. <sighs> once we once we do finally unionize, Jason, as a podcast, you are of course the boss in the situation. But once mm-hmm. the rest of your your lackeys uh, unionize, that is uh, Harry and Cody and I, we will of course be demanding a, a thirty minute nap period in the middle of every podcast. Uh, this will be non-negotiable, and and if you if you make us work during the nap period, there will be significant fines and overtime paid. I, so I, just something to consider. I I don't mean to bring out the big guns here, hard. but we, we've had a lot of great guests on this episode, and I'm not sure many of them would turn down an opportunity to come back to trial. You're gonna even get if it's, scabs, you know, even if it's you're in a, you know, a million, scabs. Week, it's only an hour a week, and they're watching the movies already. For a free podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I really don't want it to come to that. You guys, like, I know that. Don't cross the picket line. There is no financial relationship here, so we're not sure what that looks like. But just right. if you think it's, you're crossing the line, line, it's going to be annoying. Sorry, I have some DMs. I can't believe really Jason quick. just said we're replaceable. He's going to go on like our Reddit, and he's going to be like, "My co-hosts 29m, 29m, 28." That's been the idea of like a trial of Halloween episode multiple years in a row, and it's going to become reality where we're yeah. just replaced. Nobody's going to say anything; they'll just subscribe personality. Just, uh, there's like a bunch of posts on uh, the anti-work subreddit that are like, "The guy who produces the podcast is expecting me to not take my 30 minute nappy period that we all agreed we'd have." And just everybody's like, "What the fuck are you? Talking about? <laughs> what do you shut up? 30 anyway. minute nappy period and a 75 minute podcast? 75? Right. Oh man, raising my my eyebrows hey listeners uh, can't see it's there it's is a way to tie this discussion into the film we're talking about i can't quite it's it's just there something about the american something about working something about the american dream i lost it i lost fruitless it. and yeah, uh, it's, it's that we have a, we have a podcast we imagine and although we've never achieved it we're unable to imagine anything else and so we're sort of constantly in this purgatorial relationship where we think we're smart and talking about intelligent things um, and being really interesting and thought provoking, but in reality, we're doing something else, and we just can't quite figure out how to make that, how to square that connection, right? A literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw at the Trilon Cinema or people we met there. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, you tell me what you're upset about, and I'll tell you if it's real. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. <sighs> You woke me up, Jason. I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry Mackin, and I only have one thing, depression, suspicions, and mistrust. And you can find <laughs> me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Happy I didn't pick that one, although it was <laughs> close. Uh, but my name is Aaron, and I'm a generous sort of gentleman. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. You should find us on Twitter. You should find the podcast on Twitter. You should go to trilon.org to find uh, tickets to a bunch of showings for movies like, I think, the one that we're talking about today. Um, but if you're not going to be able to go to that, you should check out uh, – oh, gee, I'm trying to go to my show notes because I'm trying to get these plugs off the top because I only put them in the back end. And I guarantee nobody listens to The rest of the Bruce Dern series? The, the uh, rest of the Bruce, Godzilla's Bruce series? Well, I've got, I've got them here. I was okay, just trying to fill time. I, I think this might be the last Bruce Dern. Yes. Is it? Well – 
go well, buy anyway, Bruce um, Dern's movies yeah, on the there. internet. Be there, for, <laughs> you know? be there for Brucey. Uh, so we have uh, 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 Dishonorable Distinction, the Bruce Dern's 1970s uh, going on in April. We have the Agnes Varda due to cinema uh, in May 2022. Ishwar Honda's Godzilla also in May. And then more programming fun throughout the year. Go check it out at Triland.org. Uh, but for right now, stay glued to your seat or wherever you are for the patented Aaron Grossman summary. Hit it. <laughs> the crowd's cheering. They're expecting the greatest summary of all time. Uh, yes, we are talking about The King of Marvin Gardens, 1972 film directed by Bob Raffleson. Uh, the film follows Jack Nicholson as a character named David Stabler, uh, the host of a uh, late night uh, radio program, kind of a podcast precursor if you will he's, a, uh, who, he's definitely uh, a pod man it's it's very yes. important to this movie that he's a podcaster That's he's doing more of, like a like a night veil or like a sure. like a um like a serial like actual well-produced kind of a situation versus oh. we, not sorry that's not oh, a jason it's all, okay, all of us so maybe yeah. i should maybe i should take action before no. you guys actually play the minute i said well-produced this is like <laughs> underperforming type situation also yeah, yeah. etc how do you feel about the name etc for for a podcast like what he does miserable uh, not bad i mean i yeah, the, I mean, he does kind of like drone on, and like it fits is what I'm saying. It's, it's good in the movie, yeah, yeah. not as anyway. He gets he gets a call from his uh, his brother Jason, played here by Bruce Dern. Uh, after about 18 months of uh, complete silence, Jason asks Jack to come bail him out of jail, uh, promising David an opportunity in sunny, beautiful, non depressing Atlantic City uh, that will allow the two <laughs> brothers to finally make their fortune. Um, Jason promises that he has. Uh, connects and financing from a local gang boss named Lewis, who's played here by Scatman Crothers. I assume that our Jason has uh, 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 set the the uh, the drop for the Scatman uh, theme song. Surely mm-hmm. you've got mm-hmm. it. No, okay, uh, no, not, he, in, uh, not in this episode, but uh, I'll have it in post. Why don't we all just sing it? Let's all just take turns singing the Scatman. Two, that sounds three, fun. Four. Anyway, uh, uh, Jason lives with uh, two women of uh, questionable relationship. At the beginning yeah, but what the about least. the movie? What about the movie? <sighs> Sally and Jessica, uh, played here by uh, Ellen Bernstein uh, and Julia Ann Robinson. And although Jason is, uh, he's charismatic, charismatic. He's a uh, kind of appears to be kind of this great pitch man, and he's very initially convincing. Uh, things take a turn for the worst when David begins to realize that his brother's plans may be largely fiction uh the film was um moderately successful uh, critically and otherwise on release but has been i think kind of largely forgotten over the course of many years um as jason mentioned earlier this film kind of plays as a part of the trilons uh dishonorable distinction series uh, bruce stern's 1970s uh films um and it kind of i think you know jack nicholson is great in this all everybody's great in this but i think that that uh bruce dern in a lot of ways as this kind of um not bad guy, but kind of playing kind of playing the opposite of, of Jack Nicholson's character really stands, I think, is kind of the, the star of the show here. Um, that's what I got. I, I'm that's a perfect place to leave Rambling off. Because summary. I, I wanted to yeah, a wonderful summary. Uh, I wanted to hit you with the trivia that according to Ellen Burstyn, they were originally cast in each other's roles. Uh, and then oh, during, shit. during rehearsal, that makes uh, so much director, sense. The director was like, hey, switch for right now. And they were like. Yeah, that actually works. We like that. That's, uh, that's why, yeah. kind of the whole guy movie, and... I was like, how is Jack Nicholson playing a straight man? Yeah. Like, it's, it's wild. <laughs> I, I, a criticism of this film, uh, which I should say is uh, this, this film to me kind of seems very similar to um, a lot of plays, which is kind of an annoying thing. A lot of films from around this time period, kind of the early 1970s, were, were very largely focused on like character work specifically, mm-hmm. like 
the plots would often be maybe not inert, but kind of the back focus to the, these interesting, very well acted, very often fiercely acted kind of character studies. Um, and a lot of that does to me resemble kind of a lot of like playwriting. I think that, that here something like death of a salesman is like kind of front and yeah. center, at least for me. Um, Pauline Kale was very critical of this. Not very She was, she kind of called it like, oh, this is boring and, and not doing quite enough. And she said, one of her criticisms was that like, should have just had Jack Nicholson playing Bruce Dern's part. Mm. And I love Bruce Dern in this film, um, but it is weird to see Jack Nicholson it's, playing the part that he's doing here. You know, it's interesting because I read his character as a character undergoing a long relapse. And so I really liked the second act turn when he becomes as much a fast talking sort of like blustery salesman yes. as Bruce kind Dern's character. Or, tr- or it, tries. It's, yeah. it's a lot like The Shining in that sense where it's like because it's Jack Nicholson, you know the turn is going to come. So you're just waiting for it. And like that was Stephen King's problem with The Shining, right? But I think it works in The Shining and it kind of works here too, right? Because it's like, to me, that character is all about this idea that like he is rejecting his brother's influence on him, right? But he doesn't have anything else. Like he doesn't have any alternative. And so he finds himself falling back into that lifestyle where like in his stories, he talks about how, um, Oh, I I went to live alone for 11 days and nights. And after six days I disappeared. He criticizes um, Sally's daughter uh, or stepdaughter for sleepwalking through somebody else's life. And that feels like a much more pointed commentary on him. Right. Meanwhile, like he's sort of like trying to, safeguard himself from that temptation through his radio show but even that is like all he can think to talk about is this sort of idealized version of his own life and his brother's lives and it's just Hmm. like that's all he's got right and so like there's this there's this great sort of like greek tragic like inevitability to his decline in this movie that kind of Mm -hmm. made it work for me that being said it was wild to start this movie and realize (sighs) that jack nicholson was going to be the straight man to bruce Dern. like a sop Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. it is. It, it is it's totally outfit. Yeah, it's it's weird. I, maybe maybe my impression here is just like totally off. But when I think of, um, I feel like Jack Nicholson, despite I think being kind of just universally recognized as like one of the greats, I think that there is he he seems to me at least right now to be kind of in this very similar place to where someone like De Niro was maybe like five years ago, maybe even ten years ago, where like he kind of towards the end of his career did like a bunch of comedies and then has kind of largely stopped work i think maybe entirely like what what has jack nicholson been up Uh, to not it's kind of a meme at this point he's known for like photos of him just like hanging out on a boat right and like lakers games yeah yes and it and and it is nice to like see just a movie like especially the opening of this film was you know it's a five minute kind of single like cut of him like telling the story it's so it's, it's like oh yeah this this guy can so act beating, like, right so but good i i was I like almost mad because because it was like oh yeah if you're gonna start with a five minute monologue by like maybe the best american actor to do monologues certainly yeah. maybe at this time it's like it's gonna be really good right <laughs> like mm-hmm. it, it was kind of it was like you can't just do you can't just do that you're cheating but also because of the the Reputation. I had I had heard of this film, uh, and and especially the, at least the way that kind of the trilon is is kind of fitting it into their series. I think, and the way that the film is, I think Bruce Stern kind of comes out as the number one in this this film, uh, at least for me. And I, I I was kind of like struck by like, oh, Jack Nicholson is like. 
doing it. He's like going for yeah, it. And yeah, like, there's my, my take yeah. about the Jack Nicholson character, David, is that there's actually like a, a real Jack Nicholson character buried in that character, yes. like underneath the surface of it. I he think used to be a Jack through, Nicholson character, right? Literally, and then he went to this retreat that maybe didn't exist. <laughs> that you know, all, like all this, all these fictionalized elements of his of his life sort of reveal that. I think there's a scene where. Uh, uh, David is in, uh, is sort of interfacing with Lewis about the whole Jason situation. Uh, and he, he like is really keeping his calm for the most part, but you see just like in fractions of a second before the camera switches back to Lewis, you see like his mouth start to twitch and yeah. like his face oh, starts to plug out. He has like a, a tick, right? He has an affectation that he does in the first scene and it follows throughout this movie where he does this thing where he just sort of like scrunches his nose twice in succession really quickly and it looks like exactly it looks like a nervous tick right mm -hmm. and it's like you can just sort of like see the anxieties breaking through mm -hmm. um which again really works for me in this case because the thing that separates this for me from something like um mikey and nikki which is what this really reminded me of um is that i think that i don't think that um that David is ever under any illusions that he's going to save his brother or that this is going to happen um, to the point yeah. where like I even if I have a criticism of this movie, the the ending monologue was just a little too on the nose for me about the fun yeah, house very much in everything, yeah. um, which is it's such a disappointment, right? Because like, I think that this movie was at least at first relatively subtle in a way that I liked. Like I, I liked the fact that like the opening monologue sets such a good characterization of these characters and their relationships with each other without really spelling it out. Right. And so I was a little bit disappointed that they felt they had to bring that home. I don't know. What do you think, Cody? No, I that's on the nose. Yes. I agreed. I, I'm willing to, to sort of let it, uh, slide just because I am a big fan of, you know, I, I'm as much as any of us, I'm a fan of a good brothers movie, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> examining, you know, brother dynamics is, and, um, you know, the fact that these are at least for, you know, the first half, I, I, it, something that sort of clicked with me, it's, you know, these are, these are two brothers who are in their own ways, storytellers. Uh, and as it yes. comes to, as the movie comes to pass, like they're each called artists by different people. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, so like the, the beats are there, they're, they're coming at it from, you know, different direct directions. Life happens. Um, they are out of contact for a while. They come back together and it, it almost feels like a tete-a-tete -tete of them just like silently, you know, when they come back together, kind of silently, silently challenging each other to admit that this like harebrained scheme is not going to work. And like Jack Nicholson with his sort of like pensive silence um, and just kind of, you know, like his, his silence speaks volumes. Um, and then they, you get the feeling that Bruce Stern um, or, you know, Jason is, uh, you know, oh, uh, what's that game with the mustachioed plumber where he like runs on blocks that he steps on them and then the blocks fall down. Um, uh, nothing's uh, coming to mind. Oh, okay. That's, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a gamer. I just figured I'd throw that out there, but, uh, it's like that, you know, he's like on those blocks at all times. Like even, even the place where he sets up, you know, that hotel suite, like, like it feels like the ground is about to fall out of that for various, you know, reasons, other like peripheral schemes that just aren't working. And then there's that, you know, the middle portion, they sort of, um, like take solace in like the the fact that it was like you know um you know we're not necessarily banking on failure there's like a quiet acceptance and we're like that is becoming like this 
weird beloved pastime of theirs. And then, you know, the, the fun house mirrors become more apparent in, in the third act, but yeah, I don't know. I, I think if the roles were swapped, I mean, Jack Nicholson obviously would have been great in like a Jason-esque role. I'm still learning about younger Bruce Stern, um, so uh, but I'm sure he would have been excellent uh, in the alternative role. But yeah, I don't know. That's that's at least sort of the perspective I was coming at it from. Yeah, that that marries really well uh, with I think both what Harry was saying and where I wanted to go with that, which is like the underpinning concept of these characters is that uh, like from the from the movie's lens it wants you to believe or like in the more traditional story structure sense you should believe that both of these characters uh are like somewhat more authoritative or have more skin in the game than they actually do uh where like the movie itself sort of undercuts that a little bit by showing in the very first scene that uh david his whole career is built on fictionalizing is built on exaggerating is built on like building this mythology around himself and he makes that text later on with his uh with his monologue in the bathroom, I think another um, semi on the nose scene that was a little disappointing. I really like that scene myself, but uh, the for the story to like work in that more traditional sense, David would have to be the authoritative one, the stable one, the 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 more boring person. But he's like, I think we're all coming to, around to the understanding. Like he's not. He's he's like he's equally mentally ill. He is. Uh, he exaggerates the story of his life for attention on the radio and. Jason exaggerates elements of his life. He's, you know, they're both sort it's of like, building this, 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 this royalty around themselves, this, this, uh, you know, this idea of power uh, to get by in their worlds, to like manage and handle what they've um, like David for the uh, whatever trauma he's been through in his life that put him away for, uh, you know, a certain length of time and, and Jason for whatever ostracized him from the family. Um, and this is how they're like getting by in that world. And that, that dynamic, like Harry was saying in the beginning, doesn't ever really bring you around to, uh, believing that like David knows that this is going to work out. He never actually thinks this is going to work out. So yeah, like, well, that's when, the when dynamic you... that works so well for me that, that Cody brought up. Oh, sorry, Jason, were you, do you want no, to good? I'm sorry. Um, is that like, like Cody said that they're both storytellers and like the thing that, that this movie does that's so unique is that like um, you, even though David is your POV character into this, it, you end up understanding Jason's argument and understanding that, that Jason is right uh, at the same time, because like Jason's argument is never like, no, I, it's going to be okay. Like I am going to pull this off. That's what he's saying, but that's not really what he's trying to communicate to David. I'm, I would argue that like what he's actually trying to communicate to David is like, you are fooling yourself into thinking that you're not just going to follow me down this road. Like it mm-hmm. was over the moment he entered, um, Atlantic City, right? It was like, this is who we are. We are brothers, accomplices. We're both artists doing our art, right? And um, I didn't mean to come down too hard on that scene, Jason, because I like the ending a lot where she says, I know you're an artist. And then he plays that back and then he yeah. stares at himself in the mirror. That that rocks. And it's like, it's it, again, it's obvious, but it's like, yes, like that is always what he's wanted, right? Like this mythologized yeah. idea of he and his brother as these people who are sort of like, larger than life and creating this mm-hmm. storyline for themselves like that's it right and the whole I, in my mind the whole point of this movie is that like they know it's not true and they know it won't work out but like there is nothing else that they want or that they can imagine right there's this great failure of imagination for both these characters that kind of makes them like resentful and almost demented uh at times like i really loved the miss america scene because it was like oh this is like some like actual unhinged shit. Like these yeah. people are on a bend. That was surreal. Yeah. Um, 
to that end, like I guess the reason that that scene worked for me is because it is it's a like use case of David fooling himself by saying something that he knows is is disingenuous is is a lie into basically like he's going to broadcast this concept of like oh uh, what do he say he says um he's talking about the the death of the written word and like the autobiography is no longer a thing sort of thing uh and he says like it's unjust to him it's a it's uh what does he call it a, um a de- deprivation of his he's, rights or something his like literary that. rights i've his been deprived rights. of my literary rights uh, and i was like and, hell yeah dude same <laughs> And the way he says it is, I, cra- I crave um, uh, an audience. Uh, he's talking about like how he ha- deserves a- an outlet for this, essentially, because uh, his life is not not because it's worthy, uh, but because it is. He, but he, sorry, the quote exactly is, but hopefully because it is comically unworthy. And that's just the most like mythological. Like he's making these things up about himself to justify a, like this take that he's got about like. I, I- there, there is something about the. I wanted to br- bring this up too because uh, Jason, I know you were a big fan of the band, not an original band song, but the song Atlantic City, mm-hmm. and and actually Atlantic City itself as a place is the most mythological place other than maybe New York, I Ooh. think, in in the United States. That's maybe, like, yeah, that's maybe why I like this movie so much. Um, yes, I fucking love an Atlantic City movie, a Boardwalk City movie, especially like New York uh, or like uh, Winter East Coast, like. Holy shit! Is this a good Atlantic City movie? I'm it's sorry. Like, it's like, he, here's the no, no, no. It's fine. Here, here is the the East Coast shittier version of Las Vegas that does not have like the weather or the commerce or the the lack of regulations that Las Vegas does. So it's just like there's something like it represents like kind of like where the dreams of some place like New York eventually get filtered down to and then where they go to die in like the most depressing manner. Like it's so telling about this film that it's like, it is always overcast and just like cloudy. Yeah. It is, it is never picturesque in the way that they want. Right. It's they're like, always it's, just like, and it's winter. So it's the off season and it looks it like the, the entire, it looks like the entire movie has been like whitewashed. Like the, the film reel itself in some of those scenes where it's just like, there's just like, like sea mist and spray people just like nailing boards together in the background you know right it's like it's it's such a perfect atlantic city movie for that and david actually makes that text in another one of his monologues right where when he's talking about how he went to live by himself he says i thought i had all i needed of human contact beat but then i couldn't survive the winter on my own and like this whole movie they're trying to get to hawaii right like they're trying to get to a better climate from mm-hmm. this sort of purgatorial space they're in. And David is sort of like suggesting that like, I, I know that I'm never going to get there with my brother, but like, I can't get there anywhere else. Right. It right. was like this sort of, this yeah. sort of um, tilting at windmills pursuit that they have is sort of like the only way they know how to at least sort of like reach for the brass ring, even though they know like it's forever going to be out of reach. It's, mm-hmm, it's brutal. Mm-hmm. It's this is even before, uh, and I was just reading the, uh, on like some of the cultural context about this. This was before uh, gambling became legalized in 1976, yep. uh, which like I think plays into uh, like sort of a prescient feeling of the kinds of like stories and the sorts of people that would move about this city and the ways in which they would. Um, you get the idea that maybe if this movie occurred maybe five, seven years later that uh, Sally and uh, OG, I'm forgetting the other character's name um, would be Jessica would maybe have worked in a casino and maybe like had uh, other opportunities, but it's like, it is literally the place where you go to become a con man or to turn around and leave um, at this point in, in the world. Like they have that whole scene where they're, they go up in the, in the sky wheel 
uh, and he's talking about like what it used to be and how it's going to be something in the future, but how it's sort of like taken up and we're on uh, Stabler Avia. They're not going to allow anybody to have less than 10 acres because of this concept of like, it's just going to get eaten alive by commerce and by like the wrong types of people. He says, while he's building a scheme to like, as yeah. one of the wrong kinds of people to make and then a place Jack like Nicholson that. does the incredible Jack Nicholson thing where he starts listing like boardwalk items. He's like, there's not going to be no frozen yogurt. There's not going to be no. <laughs> That's why you go to the boardwalk. <laughs> so good. Like I almost thought about making my whole review, just no salt water taffy. Um, yeah. Just, that's a, that's yeah, a really like great a, scene. Yeah. Like an X mark. Uh, yeah. I mean, Atlantic city is like the, the, the thing about like the legalized gam- gambling is like, I think kind of important, but like maybe kind of in hindsight, like years after the movie came out. Right. Cause I think that Atlantic city was a place that was like, not just like dep- depressing entirely, like specifically pre-World War II. And then like it, the, the trajectory of it, Atlantic city as a city kind of follows like a greater national trajectory as like Korea and Vietnam and like a whole different political climate kind of started like turning everything to shit or maybe everything was shit, but like kind of raising a greater awareness about how shitty some things are. Right. Mm -hmm. And like uh, the, the specifically like the legalization of gambling and the change in culture of Atlantic city was very much a reaction to like, things are not the way that they used to be. And, and this kind of this image or this dream that this place kind of used to represent is now like pretty transparently not there anymore. Right. 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 Um, Which is, I mean, that's the whole thing with Atlantic city in general, right. Is that like symbolically it represents the funhouse mirror of America, right. The, mm -hmm. the wild distance between the sort of um, dream about what was or what should have been, or what could have been and the reality as experienced by people like the characters in this movie and the way it manifests in this, like in this really pr- peculiar kind of like Americana kitsch um, that is in ruins around them. Right. It's like the beach is there. Yeah. The paradise is quote unquote there, but like the buildings are ruined and everybody's miserable and it's overcast all the time. Not yeah, right. that. Kind of, yeah. Kind of like David and Jason's whole thing, right? Like yeah. what used to be is no longer and they can't really see the near future of it because they, don't really believe there is anything there, you know, like they're just going to go along with the scheme. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, I don't know if this is the right point at which to do so, but to talk about uh, Sally and, and Jessica. Yeah, I would love um, to. Because uh, like for me, that's a really good point, right? Um, go ahead. Yeah. For, for me, Sally is um, like, she's there from nearly the beginning of, this, of the story. Once she uh, greets David in, in that, yes. in that botched <laughs> greeting uh, from, from Jason at the, at the station. Um, but like, she's, she and Jessica sort of both float as, I, I mean, it's, it's a dated term, but floozies sort of to Jason for a good portion of the movie until like a real, uh, you know, things are simmering uh, up until the scene where Jason and, uh, and, and Sally start to burn their things on the bre- on the beach. I'm skipping a whole lot of the story that I'm sure is important to her character, but like in the interest of getting to like what really stuck out to me was that scene is like the point of no return. It's sort of like the, um, where she, uh, has like internally a realization that Jason is like full of shit that he's, you know, I don't know if they're actually burning any of his stuff on the beach. It looks like just a bunch of scarves and, and dresses her stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Literally just like throwing all of of her shit on the floor. It's, it's, it's terrible. Yeah. Uh, and she's going along with it. She's throwing her stuff in and then she goes back inside. And she, this is like just in the wake of her realizing that Jason is now gunning for Jessica as sort of the younger, uh, 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 you know, 
uh, sexual exact item version of her when right. she was like 20 yes. years younger precisely uh, and then she goes on to bury her makeup in the in the beach and sort of like it, she chops off her own hair she actually did in the like in real life she actually no, chops off really? her own hair for that yeah oh i didn't know that uh, Man. and and just what if like, you mess up that scene what what if you i mean i don't know if you can but <laughs> she uh, sneezes just in the middle of it <laughs> <laughs> no but i mean look what if it's like yeah we need another take of that so ellen hey we need a right can you grow we'll, that? We'll we see need you in, uh, that. what, uh, 18 months? <laughs> 12 months, yeah. <laughs> uh, Sorry, continue, like, Jason. That, that is incredibly important because, like, up to that point, she's sort of just responding to their antics in a lot of ways. Um, she's, you know, uh, in that scene where they're burning stuff on the on the beach, I think it's just Ellen Burstyn's performance, not necessarily anything in the movie, but, like, you get the feeling she's not really into it, that she's not really, like, mm-hmm. feeling it. She's sort of, like, going with the motions, but realizing that this is a big thing that's happening they're actually getting rid she's getting rid of all of her stability and security for another one of jason's schemes um and then of course the the home run is like oh now he's no longer interested in you the way that he was or the way that he now is in jessica but you're gonna hang around uh it's sort of that communal fiction that communal myth making that they're all sort of buying into and it's at that point that sally also becomes part of it um cody any thoughts about that yeah that's uh, no um we're all kind of talking about that beach scene um rightfully so that's um like a, a wild great important etc scene and w- like obviously the relationship between between uh jason and sally and jessica like there's a lot more to it than what i'm going to illustrate right now but like a very specific um like a, a framework that i a, that i got thinking about especially at the end of that scene where um sally burns again predominantly her things pretty much exclusively her things as as it's been pointing out and and uh jason's like uh let's go for a run and he literally calls her like she's a dog like yeah. he does literally like come here like yeah. slapping his leg and just like it is like there is an, an like an element of i mean uh, like a uh, possession and like showmanship and like grooming Jessica for like the Miss America pageant being like sort of a side hustle. Um, again, like there's a lot more, I think nuance to their um, interactions beyond just like pet owner and dogs, but like, I don't, I, I don't know, I- indicative of something for sure. And which by the way, the burning the stuff on the beach, like not to like uh, stick with like the Atlantic city Vegas comparisons, but like they are, alone on the beach burning things they are al- like earlier in the movie there it's two dudes alone on on horses um they're almost entirely alone in that warehouse doing that like miss america pageant run through and just like you like think about any movie you've seen that takes place in vegas when it can you think of like scenes shots where people are alone doing anything yeah like, the the sort of wasteland uh bit well, of it all that's in, a really good point there's not a season in vegas vegas is fucking warm yeah, all the time true. that's the thing about yes exactly. like, and like it it's so it's so evocatively shot right because like they really make a good um make good use of the sheer size of the space that they're all inhabiting like the the shoreline is so long and so broad and wide and the buildings are tall right but they're just not inhabited right so like you're you're in these like it's it's ruin like right because it it looks like they're in a place that used to be a city and is no longer a city right um yeah i uh i think that um ellen burston was probably the standout of the movie for me um i i really really like her character um i think that maybe it's unfortunate and maybe um i don't know if pauline keel um mentioned this but like it is kind of frustrating that movies are did i mispronounce her name aaron you're narrowing your yeah. eyes at me okay uh, 
it's kale. Fix it in Jason. Fix it in post. Pauline kale. Hey, and you want to give yeah. me a clean read on Pauline? Clean, <laughs> Pauline kale. I don't really care, guys. To be honest, <laughs> um, I haven't sure. mispronounced Ebert's name. I'm just gonna say it, <laughs> folks. I'm saying it. I think Can I like. Be- Pauline Kale considerably more as a writer than yeah, Roger. Yeah, she's great. But uh, um, I, it's kind of frustrating that like women tend to operate in movies like these as sort of like demonstrations of of the consequences of men's actions, right? Like, yeah. I think mm-hmm. that that like Sally's character in this is like we talked before about how um, David Stabler is sort of the Mister Jones of this movie. Like, very unfortunately, I think that. Um, Sally is like maybe the real Mr. Jones in the sense that like uh, Jason doesn't buy his bullshit and David doesn't buy his bullshit. But I think there was a time when Sally did, right? Like when she Mm. really thought that Jason loved her and when she really thought that he could do things like buy hotels that she could then go bathe in. And when she really thought that there was going to be a future for them, that was going to be something more than this sort of like endless um, like faux pageantry that is meant to sort of like resemble in this mutilated way um this life that they're supposed to have and i think Mm -hmm. that like that disillusionment is at the heart of her character whereas it doesn't really exist in the other characters especially um david and jason because i think that they're already on the other side of the um the the funhouse mirror so to speak right Mm -hmm. it's like even david is like I know that it's not going to happen. I know that like, this isn't going to be a thing. I just sort of like go along with it because it's what's happening right now. Yeah. I think your characterization of being on the other side of the funhouse mirror and sort of like, uh, no longer having those illusions, no longer bearing those assumptions or like, I think that's resonates strongly with her character because up until that scene I'm talking about, and even for a little bit beyond like her character changes pretty heavily, but prior to that point, she is sort of like she's sort of a receptacle for the anxieties of literally everybody else on screen because like you said they're mostly free of it like jessica not so because she's like newer to the whole she's younger she hasn't really been exposed she's probably not on the other side of that right she's actually like well inverse almost like and she's like this really deadly idealization right where she's just happy to be there and always goes along with everything because Mm -hmm. she loves the attention right she's been groomed she's feeding off of it and they're feeding off of her. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that like to, to Sally's credit in this movie, right? Like that is the thing that horrifies her the most probably, right? Is right, that she right. sees that being inflicted on Jessica and she realizes that that is exactly what had happened to her and that she had sort of inadvertently hmm. exposed her stepdaughter to as the sort of vision of herself. And that becomes painful, but because mm-hmm. This movie is a movie about people who can't really like can't really get what they want or do what they want and say what they want to say. That actually manifests mostly as anger towards Jessica herself, right? Yeah, yeah. Because that's I don't something think, that she can control yeah. or something that she feels like she has some power over still. Because I don't think Sally is aware of that at that point. Like I think she's acting without being quite aware. Yeah, I mean of, I think that like that's what's motivating the emotions. Right. But I think you I think that's true. Maybe yeah. Not. Yeah. Um like i guess to that point she has a certain degree of shackling to their pests to their to to uh, i'm going to say david and jason specifically to like sort of their whole bit while they have some freedom to just prance around in it they don't face a whole lot of like lasting negative uh consequences in the movie they don't have like there's no like 
lasting damage. It's just sort of them playing in a space and sort of knowing each other really well and being very frank with one another or being very reserved around one another, which is like another way for them to be to express themselves well, to each other, I guess. And, and what's uh, so funny about that is that like the reason there aren't any lasting consequences is because Scatman Crothers Lewis just is sort of a lazy mobster. He, he seems to know that Jason is going to self-destruct. And so he kind of mostly just lets it happen, right? Yeah. Where like toward the end of the movie, he sends two guys to like go and uh, kill them without weapons. And these guys just like David scares him off. And then David like goes and talks to him and he's just like, oh yeah, I did that. And like, Jason's not, he doesn't work for me and he never will. And whatever, I'm probably going to kill him, etc. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on Sally from the crew or anything else? I mean, not that we're getting to the end, but I want to talk about the end of the movie uh, mm-hmm. at some point, but I feel like maybe we're a little shy of that just yet. Mm-hmm. Not, not. Uh, I, I do agree with uh, kind of the praise of both those performances. I would did want to give a shout out real quick to uh, Scatman Crothers and also uh, uh, an actor who don't know, actually know if he appeared in anything else. Does not have a Wikipedia page at the very least. Uh, Arnold Williams, who plays Roscoe, who is the uh, kind of the solo guy who comes to track down uh, David or Jason. The, the guy uh, who, that scene with him always in the background with the two with the fro. Yes, and okay. he has a scene uh, with David uh, where David kind of hands yeah. him the gun. That scene in the, the that is like incredibly good, uh, uh, very well it's done. Scene. Like Both those characters are excellent. classic nineteen seventies scene where it's just like, man, I really loved it when people were trying to be clever with writing and write about adults yes. that were trying to like put each other on. Like the whole like dirty double crosser is somebody who goes to France and comes back without taking a yes. bath. It's like without a, taking a, a shower. Yeah, good joke, and like it's so demonstrative of so many things, and. And yeah, I mean, that scene was so like, that's kind of like, I don't, we're not getting to final thoughts, right? But like, I I just found this very refreshing in the sense that like, I just love a sad downer movie about adults who are broken and can't fix themselves. And it's like the kind of thing that like never happens anymore. And the kind of thing that that is so demonstrative of the seventies and the kind of movies that I like that like, I don't even know that this movie is like, exceptional i think it it makes some mistakes uh primarily being yeah. a little too on the nose at the end which yes, we can maybe talk so. about but like just the the fucking mood of it all the like atlantic city of it all and the fact that like it's really invested in character work as opposed to plot um all of that really works for me i think yeah for sure um yeah. well then I, I do want to talk a little bit about about the end because it's like a culmination for a lot of different things including heavily i think sally's character i think she remains pretty important <clears throat> excuse me from that uh, beach scene to the end um so just to set it up there uh, i guess this is like the penultimate scene i guess in which like a very climactic thing happens uh sally is arguing with jason about the final details of the plan and where they're going to go she's you know her jealousy uh, at, at jason for his attraction to jessica is sort of boiling over uh there's discontent and discord among them and um there's a loaded gun that's being passed between people and it ends up in uh, sally's hands and she says that she's going to you know alternately that she's going to shoot herself so that all three of them can run away to their new island she's going to shoot david so that jason and jessica can run away she's going to shoot jessica and everybody's going to be implicated all that kind of stuff she's just like making all these theoreticals um and then just in a flash just very quickly and without enunciation uh she shoots and kills jason dead uh he's laying on the on the floor and like i loved the feeling of that moment not only because of how quickly it came and how quickly it went but because in the immediate aftermath all you hear is running water and uh 
and Sally walks to the bathroom where the shower is running because Jessica was going to get in and she can't turn off the shower. She can't stop the water from running. She has trouble even with the dials. Um, and then of course, you know, the consequences start to come in. And the only thing that I could think or feel about that moment was like, Oh shit. Now Jessica, or sorry, now Sally has actual consequences to deal with. Now, like all this burdening that she's done for almost the entire rest of the movie, uh, is coming to roost on this person who truly doesn't deserve it, who is like 100% not. I mean, of course, Jason is dead. So I guess he's faced some consequences as well. But in the immediate aftermath of that, like what is the the next move for for Sally? She's now she actually has like something to deal with. There's actual real consequence. There's weight to what's happened uh, in a way that like the rest of the movie has sort of danced around. Uh, Harry, you characterized the middle of this movie, or at least like maybe 90% of it as just scenes that happen kind of like vignettes that sort of exemplify or give a peek into the stories and, and like lives that these people have that are intersecting. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting, right? Because I, I don't disagree with you except that I think that it's, it's more like, Sally had always been the person who was having consequences visited upon her mm. and was maybe the only character because she was the only character who ever actually believed in the illusion. So she was the only person who was ever actually hurt by it. And I think that that was her like way of finally sort there's almost like a reclamation of agency there, right? Where it's like, right. God damn it. I'm going to make this matter to Jason. Because like I know he doesn't care about me. I don't I know he doesn't care about the consequences of his actions, but it's killing me. And so I'm gonna make it kill you too, right? There's this 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 boil over, like you characterized it really well. No, I think that's exactly what it is. I think it is like a moment that she's taking agency over, like in yeah. a way that otherwise people just haven't been. Jason is able sort of to act with impunity to a certain extent. Uh, David is like vis the, vis the excuse me, the the Jason's sins are sometimes visited on David where he's like accosted by two men in his room and he's kidnapped by Lewis's men and stuff, but like not, not stuff that boils. Like you said, Lewis confronts David and sort of lets him go and says, Hey, you know, there's Jason is, he, he's not a bad person. He just like, he has no, he's, he doesn't have what you have. He's not a, like a, he's not a man of import. He's not a king of anything sort of speech. Um, and so like up to that point, you get this feeling that if it hadn't ended, that if this scene, or at least I got this feeling that if that scene hadn't ended with somebody dying, <laughs> that it would have just continued on. Like the deal would have fallen through. And they would have kept on bumming around and they would have kept on with these cycles with this whole charade would have kept continuing. Yeah. But the person who's been deprived most maybe of her agency is the one who like puts a stop to it, a, like a deadly stop and actually like ends something actually takes an action that is meaningful and not just continuing that cycle, but like importantly affects the dynamic. And it's literally just because they've been skating around it for so long. It's the death of one of those characters. Yeah, you you framed that really well. Um, I really like the last couple scenes of this movie. And like, the more we talk about them, and the more that I have thought about them over the last few days, like I've liked them more and more. And um, to like, uh, kind of reiterate that that penultimate scene, um, right, it's, it's Sally um, exploring various permutations of like, you know, what might happen. And then I think it's, um, it's uh, Jessica asks what's going on. And um, David says, well, your mother's going to murder one of us. So far, you're the only one who has not been named. It's like a, like a legitimately very funny exchange sort of yes. on par with like the tone that has been displayed throughout this movie up to this point, the conversations that these characters are having. It's just that Right, the the well, fact that in like is, it's not that, real at all for any of them, right? Until the the second it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The fact that yeah, and the you know what you guys are talking about, um, as has been said, Sally being the one person who most believed or who truly believed in that 
illusion. It's like, well, you don't play with the person who has actually bought into all of this. This is not like mm-hmm. the same like charade for them. Um, and then like flash forwarding to the end, um, we're, if you're listening, we're flash forwarding to the end. Um, the last scene uh, with, with, um, with David arriving home, um, you know, he's with his grandfather's grandfather's watching like an old film reel. Uh, I believe of the two of them, da- David and Jason and David like shuts the door, but he doesn't shut it all the way. And he apologizes um, as his grandfather goes up and gets it. And last line of the movie, his grandfather saying, it's okay. I know you didn't mean it. And just like all of these things that they've been talking about up to this point, like the whole illusion, the mirage of it all, like, you know, we're, we say we're going to do these things. How many of these things are going to actually happen? I'm not really sure. I like any of these people not, you know, you know, deep down, not necessarily fully um, committing to or believing in these things actually happening um, and the things that actually do come true, having to apologize for them just because like, you know, we didn't actually mean for them to, to well, happen in the first place. And, and that cuts both ways, right? Because like I, right. my reading of that is also like, like the grandpa's like literally what happens is that the, the projection is on the door. And when David opens the door, yeah. it breaks the projection so that he can't mm-hmm. see their childhood basically anymore. And to me, what, what the grandpa was saying, it, it was sort of like a, a direct commentary on the movie that had just proceeded where it was like, it's okay. I know you didn't mean it. It's like David can say all he wants about, how he's actually matured. He's passed this idea that he doesn't want that anymore, that he's over his brother. He's not going to see his brother again, but everyone knows he doesn't mean it. Like everyone knows that at the end of the day, David wants that sandcastle as badly as Mm -hmm. his brother does. Um, And so, yeah, I mean like it's a, it's, it's really, really remarkably like a, a summary of the movie, right? Because like literally yes. they're, I think they're on Atlantic, like the Atlantic city beach and yeah. the, the tide takes out their sandcastle by the end of that clip, right? Like they're building a sandcastle and then the, the tide comes and washes it away. The, uh, the, the, the touch of the, the grandfather, like the very last shot, well, not, it's the same shot, but the, the end of that shot being, the door finally fully closed and the grandfather just like coughing in the background for a little yeah. bit. Maybe on those. So good. Yeah. yeah. Maybe on the fish bones, but he, he does the, he doesn't die right until somebody actually does die. Right. Which is, I think the very obvious metaphor of the, the, the squirt guns right next to the actual gun. Right. Mm-hmm. It is. I, the problem is I think you, the movie, the movie can get away with like two or three of those, but the movie has like six or seven of those. And I yeah, think that's I mean, where it's a little obvious as well, for sure. Um, I I think it still really works for me, particularly um, yeah. Burston's character, because like I, the way we've characterized this uh, so far, it like it has all of the hallmarks of like a really really realistic abusive relationship, right? Where like Jason, you had said that even like after that scene on the beach where she burns her hair, you can see her slipping slowly back into the orbit of um of jason and like that's how it works right is that like they think they're over it they say never again it's not going to happen this time and then it's just like something happens right with with charisma or like the you humanize the abuser a little bit or maybe they make a small like seemingly meaningful but not actually materially meaningful concession and you're back in orbit again and so it's, it's exactly like you said jason it's like had she not shot someone and I really love that, like, who she ends up shooting is almost arbitrary, right? Because of how complicit they all are in each other's lives. Then absolutely she would have fallen back with Jason again. And, like, this all would have happened again and again and again mm-hmm. until 
somebody died, right? That's, like it, that's sort it of had how I, to end. That's sort of how I thought it was going to end. Do you think then that like in that same way that uh, like there is that uh, sort of mea culpa that sort of like you will, there's that charisma, there's, there's whatever ends up putting you or, you know, the person who is abused, the victim of a situation back in the orbit of the person who is wantonly disrespecting your entire existence, but like your agency, do you think that like that Jack Nicholson's final monologue into the radio where he starts like breaking down in tears, sort of explaining what had the squirt gun was always with the real guns or the other way around uh, sort of thing. Is that his moment of like, this is the thing that he's going to do to then get audience, to get people to believe like, is this the scene that they needed to metatextually say, this is how these people earn back trust just enough. This is how people apologize. This is how people mea culpa their way out of culpability for a situation. Um, I didn't see anything as either sort of, I mean, I, I think that the, it's more of a downbeat ending to me. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe more honestly, like I think Cody's like the last scene there is that like, there is this admission, right? Where like, if, if Jason is the vampire, it's sort of like the idea that like the vampires thralls stop, don't stop being thralls once the vampire is dead. They mm. just go on being sort of like obsessed with this thing that they can no longer have. Like, I, I think that it's like. Um, even though it's over, the abuse like spiritually continues, right? Because David is still going to mythologize his brother and he's okay. still going to make his living off of telling these stories and believing these stories in some way or another. Um, even though the sort of like the seed is is gone, right? And it, it's sort of like, I think that completes the American dream metaphor, right? Because it's like, we all know the American dream is gone and it's dead, right? It's as dead as Jason. But like, lo and behold, the way that we all still sort of like have this relationship with it that we can't quite escape from. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, and basically just like rephrasing what Harry said, I, I sort of read that scene as this, like a few different things are happening. The the whole, like, um, you know, uh, David really taking pride in being called an artist, but maybe not necessarily loving the process of being an artist hmm. like that, you know, hashtag, right. But then like, f- like obtaining, you know, this experience that really like, takes his art to the next level. Um, but like does allow him to like, take his art to the next level and like kind of, re- yeah. Wrestling with the fact that like, yeah, he is stuck in the grind. Um, I can't help but read everything with like an anti-labor sentiment, but like there, there was definitely a flavor of that in that scene. It was really good. No, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the, I, I should say I enjoyed the finals, the closing scene. I like, I know that it is a bit on the nose. It is a bit like in summary type thing, but I think it's really like that whole last shot of David coming in, opening the door, sort of interrupting the movie leaving. And then like accidentally not leaving the door closed. Uh, it starts to open up. And like, I, I like the visual, I guess, yeah. metaphor or imagery of like, the, not just like the image being broken, but it being broken onto David. He's like, yeah, literally the bars of the, the most, stairs. Yeah. The if you're looking at it from the most, yes. most rhetorical, like uh film one oh one type view, it's like he is, he is, trying to depart he is trying to leave and it, it's literally yeah. following him up the stairs like like aaron's miming yeah. for all the listeners at home uh he's literally like <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, he's he's trying to get away from it he's not cody's doing it too everybody should know um and he's like 
he's trying to escape, not necessarily escape intentionally, because like he's going back to his own. He's literally still living with his grandfather uh, on what I'm assuming is not a salary where he could get his own place out of making one radio show that plays at 3 a.m. or some shit. I mean, I what I interpreted that that as is like that first story. He tells a story about how he and his brother let his grandpa die, and. Then he goes home and it's revealed that he actually had been taking care of his grandfather seemingly ever since then, right? So it's sort of like, to me, that that sort of like, um, it it prefigured the resentment that comes with the fact that the story isn't what you want it to be mm. that we see unfolding throughout this movie, right? Where it's like, David, like, there's some sort of like idol worship of Jason as sort of the unencumbered version of himself that he wants to be. Yeah. Um, but he's not that because he does things like take care of his grandpa. Right. Yeah. No, well put, well put. Uh, that was the end of my list of notes. Are we ready for the final segment of our show? Um, my last thought would just be like, I, I think that like, we haven't really talked about this, but formally this movie is really interesting in that like, we had we had said that the entire second act is like this. It's this like Heart of Darkness series of bizarre vignettes, right? Where they will just cut to Jason and um, uh, David on horses. And Jason will be very seriously saying to David, like, I just need to know that you're still here with me. <laughs> and it's man that scene is so fucking funny like there it's a weirdly funny movie what were some of your guys's favorite sort of moments i guess i kind of want to talk mm. about some of the moments uh one of my favorite moments is just after the and it's not funny at all but uh it's just after the sky ride when they come back down and they've had this like conversation about what uh in atlantic city has been what what they want stable arabia to be um and like they're both kind of again by this point in the story you know that it's not going to be and I forget what he's looking at. If he's just watching Jason walk away, but David has stopped on the boardwalk right in front of the machine. And it's got this like really close shot on Jack Nicholson's face. And he sort of looks up at the sky and you're watching him the whole time. It's unbroken. And then he just like looks back down and then pow, a black cut to a screen. And then like just the next scene starts in their hotel hotel room or whatever. It's like weirdly all these strangely iconic images. I was really weirded out that like I hadn't seen many of these in like images or reaction gifts or anything because it's very like very well composed film within those shots like it, it doesn't it doesn't flow like much of anything but individual scenes individual shots can be really like stunningly finding some beauty in the plane just in terms <laughs> yeah. of how it's framed and stuff that one they're, that they're one interestingly one done like yeah, even, sure. even scenes that i think are pretty straightforward or there's there's something there that yeah yeah kind of and i even i even to. love that cutting that you referred to jason right like i love that like the middle of this movie is like a delirium right where like they there's are just literally like a half in second out. of literally half a second of just black cut and then hard yeah. cut back into the film at times and, it's, and it's they're weird. just doing like things with no explanation right like like that horse scene i mentioned like it's eventually revealed that they're at some sort of like riding attraction on the mm-hmm. beach but like it you don't learn that until like two-thirds of the way through the um scene and also like they never discussed going there and they never talk about it after that scene right and there there's like three or four instances of, uh, at one point they're like they're auditioning auctioneers and then they decide <laughs> that they're not they don't want to do that so they give all of their uh it, like stuff that they were uh, auctioning away in this sort of like fast talking manner and then that scene's just gone and it's like what the hell's going on it, it's it's like really like you're they're in like a like a um dreamscape are we still talking about scenes and moments we like yeah yeah let's sure. do it okay uh one um 
Scatman Carruthers uh, shout outs. Uh, his, uh, I guess his, his two scenes, his meteor scene, the latter one um, when he's with Jack Nicholson, uh, the he's, he's talking with David and there's, he kind of looks over um, this, this guy who's, breaking glass and like jumping on it you guys remember this scene it's, yeah what was his name he, he wonder looks, he looks at him and oh. he goes i believe it's teddy oh. the wonder boy and, <laughs> and he responds with yeah i wonder what you're doing in my kitchen or <laughs> <laughs> I, I, could, I could not give that reading justice but like oh, talk man. about someone who you you know you would love to see him on screen more but he you know pound for He's pound in and out. like all you need yeah yeah just the juiciest most engrossing performance in that movie they they <laughs> wrung every second out of him it was they really amazing good. that was that was such a good yeah that was a nice you know you know pep you back up for the last 20 minutes of the movie Aaron, did you have any little scenes, little bits come to mind? What are you going to remember from this movie 20 years from now? If you're alive uh, from I, I will fully, I, I fully expected that my brain will entirely deteriorate due to the amount of like energy drinks and just like <laughs> junk that I drink on <laughs> a daily basis. Yeah. 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 I, I may see a still or two from this movie kind of flutter past my eyes. Before I, I saw that. Close them it turns the out that uh, kombucha, <laughs> it's, it's 70% lead. Um, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, you're not supposed to. Yeah, you put that in your plants and the potting soil to make them grow faster. You're not supposed to eat that. What are you doing? What is his name? Um, David Q. Kombucha or whatever? DT Dave, excuse me, I think. GT, excuse Yeah, it's GT Dave. Anyway, I'll say the scene with Scatman Crothers. I like a good confrontation, like a good, just like. This is the guy they've been wanting to talk to the whole film, and and you know, I, I like that, like a kind of a serious man sort Jesus of situation. Movie. Yeah, 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 like yeah, a boss like battle. Oh, is that what you games nice. call Wait. it? Hmm. He's doing it. I, I guess it kind of is that. Yes, I would not personally, as a gamer, wouldn't make that comparison. But well, uh, I mean, know. the Yakuza series is known for boss battles that are literally just going in and sitting down and talking to people about. Uh, local real estate problems. And so. then you both tear off your shirts and beat the shit. Yeah, and you fight each other. With <laughs> Eventually. Yeah, best game ever made. I mean, that's, um, that's one of the less interesting parts. Kick them through a door. Yeah. Uh, uh, cool. I, it's, like a, it's like the Wizard of Oz, right? That scene where, where it's yeah. like, all it, like there he is. Like There's the guy they've kind of been trying to get in touch with the entire movie. And he's just like, oh yeah, uh, Jason... That guy fucking sucks. Uh, I just got a computer back here with some beeps and boops. I'm just moving <laughs> levers, dude. I don't know. Jason, you're going to clip that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, well, then I think we'll call that the end of our actual discussion. Thank you very much for listening. Go to trylon.org for tickets and stuff. Harry is having a rave in his own home. Uh, but we have one more segment for our show. Uh, and I need, do need Harry's help ringing it in. Yes. Thank you, Jason. I was just like, holy shit, we did it. An hour. We talked about a movie for an hour, guys. Uh, and now this segment is the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's Noties. Dang, oh. fellas. Thank you so much for that introduction. Listen, oh, that one especially, I, I especially put some English on I, it. I got to spin yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, I really felt the the brotherly love. Um, we've got a, a pretty, pretty straightforward segment this week, I think. Um but they're never that straightforward, aren't they? Or are they? You know, I'm, 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 I'm winking for you, listeners. Uh, here we are, folks, in the Try Love Gardens. Um, gardens have nothing to do with this, full disclosure. But the phrase "Try Love Gardens," whoops, 
floated through my brain and I, you know what? I thought it sounded really nice. So that's what I went with. Uh, but what we'll actually be doing is treating our fine listeners as well as each other here on this recording to our best renditions of readings fit for the radio airwaves. Kind of like Ooh. what Jack was doing in the movie that we just finished discussing. Uh, now you might be asking yourselves, what will we be reading? Well, I'm, I'm going to go down the line. Uh, we'll do alphabetical by first name order. So, Aaron, you're on deck. And each of you will randomly select a letterboxed review from a collection that, that I've curated. Um, uh, I'll ask some fun bullshit multiple choice questions. And your answers to those questions uh, will inadvertently decide what entry that you end up reading. And they will, full disclosure, you know, uh, right, spoilers, I should say, uh, they'll also tell us a little bit about you fellas. Um, so uh, the, the the smallest of some things. Um, so yeah, these, these reviews are going to come from total strangers, um, not from our immediate circles. So we don't have to worry about that. Um, so yeah, once the review is decided through my very scientific means, I will, um, I'll send you a Twitter DM. Uh, with the review, so uh, get okay. your get your mobile devices or or browser tabs ready. Use um, your Google. And, you know, yeah, this time you know use your your Google or at least you know your your browser. Um, and you know I'll send you the entry. Give it your your best radio read attempt on mic. Um, I believe in the music biz they refer to that as sight reading. Am I making that up, Jason? Yeah, you host uh, music I mean, correct. Yeah, sure, sure. Sight okay. reading is yeah, yeah. Well, Jason was the only one here who can comment on music, apparently, is my logic. So, I bet I've sight-read um, more than Jason has. I, yeah, I can't sight-read, but I've band. tried. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. We're, we're no band kids. You were in band all, all high school, right, Aaron? I, I was in band marching band. I was, I was just in for a year. real bands. I was in rock bands. That's oh, that's right. fake. The Dang. Well, you guys got me beat. I, I stopped playing saxophone after eighth grade. Never too that's, when, that's almost when Nick did it after Nick quit after like sixth grade because uh, and I quote the saxophone won't make noise anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it just, he thought it was like broken and just like stopped working. I'm pretty sure he just like wasn't good at it, but like he just was like, yeah, it's well, not making sound. He, he busted that thing. Yeah, Nick dude. got really into ketchup bread. Nobody ever saw me. <laughs> it, um, there's ketchup all over these valves. He's so. oh, inside gosh. of it and he's just stuffed with Wonder Bread and ketchup. Oh, with with that disgusting image in our heads. Um, yeah, there there are no points here. Reminder: no trivia mafia rules. Just just good vibes. Um, or just at, at the very least, vibes of some variety. Um, so, Aaron, you're going to be first, and I'm going to ask you this question, and I will give you three follow up responses for you to choose from. Okay. The question is. You're on a tropical island. Where do you fall asleep? In the sand, under the shade of a tree, or wherever there's no noise. Which one of those are you trending toward? Ooh, I'm under under the shade of a tree for sure. I would like a little bit of noise. I I need that that oh, those those island sounds, you know, soothing me into uh, slumber. Nice. Yeah. Well, hey, that's yeah. Whom's among us? Yep. I always just say whom's among us and don't follow it up. Um. So yeah, I just sent you. The the link via Twitter direct messaging feature. So pull that up and in, in your best, you know, you know, prepare yourself. Um, you know, you'll you'll be live on the air. You give it give it your give it your best attempt. We're all we're all eagerly awaiting. I just need to read this however I want. Yeah. Sure, to put it okay. flatly. Yeah. Pretend I did this in a, a Gilbert Godfrey tribute voice. Uh, I'm not going to. R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. Um, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll read it. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, do I read what the movie is or do I just read the... Uh, sure, if you want, either before or after. Um, I kind of left that open-ended, whatever you want to do. Okay. I feel like there's a lot of pressure on me. <clears throat> now you know how That's I fine. feel, there baby. Is. An enigma that is so ambitious and riddled, but so meticulously crafted and void of convolution. I love how it doesn't sacrifice any entertainment and has humorous moments that don't take itself seriously. It's chilling how David Lynch has a strong direction on filming dreams and nightmares with pinpoint accuracy. The betrayal of the Hollywood dream and the nightmare of penitence is a horror to witness, yet the indelible vision of such a dream makes this experience worth every minute. That's I, Mulholland Drive, of course. Yeah, uh, Corey, I thought, I thought you said that we weren't reading each other's my reviews. Review. <laughs> I would I'd not have a, a thesaurus open in the same manner that this review did. Yeah. This was reviewer oh, San. So oh, damn, he's naming Son. names. Not two, 200, 250 likes on it. Better than anything I got on Letterboxd, so there you go. Uh, more popular oh, you're than the hand reviews getting up there, isn't it? Hand, you know, someone, I think, deleted their account because it dropped one <gasps> since the last time I looked at it. Wait, I was like, one? damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, I see the nut because it's always like my most popular. So like, I'll scroll he by. He checks like, it oh, every night before he goes to sleep. <laughs> I don't check it every night before I go to sleep. And now it's down oh, to 34. So big bummer. Ouch. Yeah. Should we dupe some accounts? Should we start making some bots? And <laughs> I'm going like to gain letterboxed fame. <laughs> All right, try uh, love yeah. five. You know what to do if you have not liked Aaron Grossman's <laughs> no, actually, pleases, be... uh, the hand review. Yeah. Yeah. Also, can we take a break for a second? I just need to go take a, you know. Aaron, this would be a good opportunity for you as well. Is that something we can do, Jason? No, I'm doing fine. Are you asking me for permission to take a piss? I am. Yeah. <laughs> Go piss, girl. Oh, boy. 104.10, Harry's pissing. I feel like the it would be funny if you left in some of that. You, you think I'm not <laughs> going to? <laughs> Fair. <laughs> pretty good point. I don't uh, Yeah, who the fuck am I talking to? <laughs> and now we're back in. Uh, 30 minutes later, Harry made his way back from... No, you can strike that from... Clean there. read. Clean read. Aaron, that was beautiful. Fellas, what do you think of Aaron's reading? Uh, let's hear it from, from the crowd. What comes to your mind? It was pretty good. Uh, was yeah. Or- or- oh, Orson yeah. Wellian. Ira Glass, oh. Orson Welles, uh, uh, Lynn Rosetta Casper. There are a few voices that stand up as like the greats of radio over time. You know, the spoken word. Uh, now Aaron Grossman. Put put me and up on the marquee among them. Yeah. <laughs> I well, I would never say I'm a greater uh, orator than uh, Orson Welles. You know, but what this maybe, what maybe this podcast episode presupposes is what if he is? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, brilliant. Let's let's pivot over to to Harry. You are next step in the queue. Saving the Harry, best for last, you, huh? Well, <laughs> <laughs> look. I'm going to keep going. Harry, this is your question. How do you most prefer to get around? Walking, driving, or flying? I'm going to go with flying. Harry is going to go with flying. And I am talking slowly so that I can vamp long enough. It's Twitter.com. He didn't specify... so I imagined my body flying through the air unencumbered <gasps> like Superman. 
That was the you can't do that. Line. You can't do that. That's against the rules. No, no, it's not. He didn't specify. He just said, <laughs> "How do you prefer?" So he's breaking the game code. Yeah, I, I gotta, I, I gotta keep the answers all the this approximately the same length. I thought that would be a cute way to go about it. But Harry, I did uh, send you your entry. So um, whenever you're ready, cue that bad boy up. Uh, yeah, um, thank you. Get your 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 speaking. Yeah, get your speaking voice ready <clears> and, and treat us to the to the lyrical soothing melodies of you thank you cody yes uh this review inexplicably begins venezia eight colon uh i think that's a reference to the venice film festival as the tag Uh. tells but now i'm going to read the review proper uh it goes like this sometimes you just know when you've seen something special dot 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 and dune part one yep the official title that was in parentheses is to me an all-time great Denny Villeneuve's masterpiece. I see why you gave me this one now, Cody. Uh, I'm do. I did that on purpose. Can we get? Can we get yeah, hey, I do it correctly. A symphony of spectacle, sound, and storytelling. A cinematic oddity that is odyssey. Excuse me. That is every bit as visceral and emotional as it is epic and beautiful. You could say it's a dot 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 slam dunk. That's spelled D-U-N-C. <laughs> so I presume Dunk is probably the right way to say it, uh, incorporating the title of the film. But uh, if I'm incorrect, um, you can let me know in the comments. What if Harry's review is just the names Pauline Kale and Denny Villeneuve? Just copy and paste it 100 times, just like one, two columns down the row. 20,000 likes. That was very good. That's a very funny review. To, you know, I don't agree with the take on the film, but that is a very good... Slam Duke is very good. <laughs> Slam is very good. Slam yeah. It's like a French uh, basketball maneuver. Le Duke. Le Duke. That's wait. They have another maneuver, right? That actually matches uh, a no, title we talked about recently. What is that? How do you pronounce it? Do you have it on your soundboard, Jason? How does that go? Denis, can you? Oh, okay. How does it? How does it go? Diabolique. Diabolique. Oh, thank you. Diabolique. Thank you. I knew it was something like that. Uh, yeah, Harry. I think you matched. Um, this is like this is a compliment. I love the like the energy you brought to it, and like how it felt like it matched <laughs> what they were saying. Just like I was reading it in my own like inner monologue voice, and I was like, "This doesn't feel right." But I think you brought you brought the right something to it. Well, see, I'm, really I'm all about from. formal and thematic agreement. That's kind of what we're all. I've about. always said that about. Yes, thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah, that's what, fellas. What do you think? Lockstep. I think it's exactly what I expected. Yeah, <laughs> he always brings it. You know, he's just yeah. a, a real homer. Yeah, that guy. This pronunciation of that particularly <laughs> yeah. old consistent. He always brings that as well. Yeah, I did. I didn't know you were going to fuck up Pauline Kale's name because I didn't know you could. But otherwise, one hundred percent in line with my expectations. Pauline Kale. Kale. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's stop getting him. I have I have to Diopoline. close the loop on this. Is is Cody yeah, gonna get you one? Are we gonna sign you one? Uh just stay tuned for the end of the episode, maybe. Um as for now, Jason is is horny for a read of his own, so let's not waste any more time, shall we? Jason, here is your question. Which would you most want to be? The best, the first, or the most? The most. Yeah, yeah, well, you already are, daddy uh, <clears throat> the most. I'll say he is. <laughs> <laughs>
Can we get a clean? I guess we just got it. <laughs> oh, let me paste that. All right, Jason, it has been sent to your Twitter DM box. I see right. a smile on your face. I think All we're right. in for a treat. This is a two-star review from Jacob on Letterboxd. Morbius has fucking ruined me. I've got nothing left. I'm drained. Mentally. Emotionally. I'm dehydrated from crying. There aren't any words. My hands are fucking shaking. I need to lie down. Stay in it. Feel it. That's an all-time fave right there. Yeah, it is. Welcome yeah, to Thunderdome, is. motherfucker. <laughs> the <laughs> doctor is in. Morbius. <laughs> <laughs> Morbius has fucking ruined me. This is <laughs> I want Devastation. that on a shirt, a hat, a tattoo. <laughs> Morbius brought me down to nothing and built me back up. There was oh, life right. before Morbius and life after Morbius. <laughs> the that, turning so point. What I'm hearing is that uh, our boy Jason did the doctor justice. Would you say I'm right, fellas? Yes, of course. So there are points. Okay, I get I it. would say the doctor is in, yes. And he <laughs> pronounced everything correctly. So, you know. We're having fun. Well, okay, great. Hey, look at that. We all we all came to the, the, the party held here in the Trilove Gardens, we hope. And I hope you all enjoyed the trip. I enjoyed the trip. Uh, I will probably take a car next time instead of uh, riding a horse. But uh, you're you know, not going to fly. I'm you not going to carpool with Harry or fly pool with Harry. I would. I would fly pool with Harry, but uh, I don't know. A solo horseback all the way to Atlantic City seems a little uncomfortable. My my crotch my crotch is going to bow a little bit too much. Thank you, Cody, for always ending our episodes on a fun, uh, up-hearted, light-hearted note. I'm sorry, I, I never do these right. I'm too buzzing from the actual discussion about the movie from farting. Uh, I am all worn out from. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. This has been an episode of Trial of 170 episodes in the bag, y'all. Uh, and you can go to trilun.org to get tickets to other movies like these. Um, there are a number of series already planned for the rest of the year. So you should check them out. Uh, and if you're not interested in seeing a movie there, you know, uh, maybe just check out their merch and their membership club. I don't know if you, if you don't want to see movies, there, I don't know why you join the membership club, but, uh, you know, you've probably got a little bit of extra money bum around if you do. Throw it at them uh, once in a while. It's it's a good place with good people. Uh, but for right now, uh, we are Try Love Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. My name is Jason Daphnis, one of your co-hosts, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, if you watch The King of Marvin Gardens and like what you see, I will casually, very softly throw out Blowout mm-hmm. and The Last Ooh. Detail as uh, kind of side recommendations. I won't get too into that now. I don't want to say too much about it, but there are some shared components in those that I think vibe pretty well with that. Um, So yeah, great stuff. Great pick. Mr. John Moret, he doesn't miss. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. It's really interesting, Cody. I thought about Blowout a lot too while watching this movie, and I wasn't exactly sure why, because I don't see the like explicit connection, but that's a very good movie. Um, so oh, yeah. if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. Um, it's pronounced Mobrius, actually. Uh, and oh, fuck. My name is Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. My name's Aaron, folks. I'm out of the stead. No longer live in Minnesota. You probably know that. I cannot go to the trial on, so make sure to go to the website and go for me. Uh, quick note, 
Uh, if you were looking to go to any of the Godzilla showings, Harry actually bought all of the tickets for every single showing of that in advance uh, so he could watch it by himself in the theater. I disagree with the man's methods, but it gets results. Uh, my name is Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. I promised that I would tell you why I never eat fish. When we all moved into my grandfather's house, it somehow fell to me to keep the old man's mind off of things. We would play casino over an old card table. He never let me win. One time he put one of those tiny model trains into my hamburger. He was a practical joker. I broke my tooth on it. On Friday evenings, we had fish at our house. Every Friday. Not on religious grounds, but because Grandpa was a fish enthusiast. Keeps you from going blind, he would say. Even though the bones always got caught in his throat. My brother and I would sit next to one another, waiting for his terrible coughing to begin. Then one of us would be dispatched to the kitchen to get a flat heel of bread to clear the bones. He'd gulp it down, and slowly his coughing would diminish, and then everything would be quiet again, and we would go on with the meal as though nothing had happened. One Friday, my parents went out, leaving my brother and I alone to serve ourselves and grandfather. Mom left the fish warming on the stove, breaded sole. The breadcrumbs only helped to conceal the bones. When the inevitable coughing began, my brother and I just sat and looked at each other, not moving. Grandfather's eyes got wide. His face became contorted and red, his arms flailing about. I raced to the kitchen and back with a flat heel of pumpernickel. Grandfather reached out for it convulsively. But I handed it to my brother instead. And he back to me. Grandfather pitched face forward onto the dining room table, and then back, knocking his chair over, pulling the tablecloth, silverware, mashed potatoes, fish, stewed tomatoes with peppers and onions, all of it on top of him, heaped on the floor, behind the table, he looked like the remains of some chaotic dinner party. My brother took the incriminating pumpernickel 
from my hand and stuck it into Grandpa's fingers. I think at that moment, my brother and I became accomplices forever. Don't ever say a word about this, he said. Just go to bed and pretend that you're asleep. The next morning, my parents explained to me that uh, Grandpa had gone away on business and had left me a very special kiss goodbye. <laughs>